Aberdeen Standard Investments, proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CityWire Selected Podcast. I'm Jessica Beard, international reporter. Coming up on today's show, I'm really excited for you to hear from our latest guest, Joe Wiggins. He's a fund selector at Aberdeen Standard. Now, Joe has a really keen interest and has done a lot of work around behavioural science. He specialised in the subject with a master's degree at LSE and writes a blog all about it. I went to meet him at the City of London and he told me all about what behavioural finance can teach us about fund selection. So some really interesting and new perspectives coming up. Joe, hi. Hello. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, so you've done a lot of research and work on behavioural finance. Um, something that we hear a lot about, I mean daily in markets, is terms like markets are overreacting, investors are overconfident. Surely this is something all investors are grappling with. It's certainly a crucial topic, but it's something that I don't think is considered or applied enough. Um, our behavioural biases and our emotions are paramount to our decision making. And I think all investors need to think about how they make decisions and the biases that might affect them when they're making those decisions. So what are some of the kind of most common behavioural biases that investors fall into? There are huge swathes of biases. I think the most prominent ones are the ones that have the most impact on investment outcomes are uh, myopia or short-termism. So even if we're investing for the long term, we tend to be excessively diverted by what's happening in the short term, how prices are moving over weeks and months rather than over years and that's not helped I think um, by how the environment around us obsesses about different stories and different narratives so it's very difficult to take a long-term view even if you know that's in your best interest so investors need to find ways to be more long-term to meet their investment objectives and and try and think less about the daily fluctuations in, in asset prices. Okay, and so how have you managed to kind of bring this into your day-to-day work? I think the environment you work in is crucial. So I think you need to be in an environment where the people in your team understand the biases and the vulnerabilities you have, and you need to set out from the outset that you are thinking about the long term, and in essence desensitise yourself to those short-term fluctuations. So it's about environment and it's about culture. And I think one important thing people should always be comfortable with is the ability to do nothing. So doing nothing should be the default. There's a great temptation because of the amount of noise in markets um, to overtrade, to keep making decisions. And I think at an individual investor level and a professional investor level, there's a real temptation to be seen to be doing something when there's a next market event. You should be reacting to it. But in many cases, the best thing to do is to sit in your hands, to do nothing and to take the long-term approach. So people should be very comfortable to say things are very uncertain but we think doing nothing is the best option and that should be a credible option rather than something that is um, frowned upon. Yeah, so have you, have you found yourself falling into any of these kind of pitfalls before? I think it's always, when at the outset of an investment, you always have the idea of being a long-term investor, but it's very difficult because you experience markets on a day-to-day basis as much as you might invest in a fund, for example, on a five-year view, you still have to live that on a day-by-day basis. Um, so it is very difficult and you have to constantly remind yourself that you're taking a long-term view. Um, and I think one of the important things to encourage long-term investment is to be diversified if you're investing in active managers. 
the blend managers of different styles. So when you invest in one manager who's underperforming, you might have another manager who's outperforming. So you're not as sensitive to that underperformance. So you need to be careful and considerate about how you construct your portfolio to try and dampen some of those potential behavioural biases. Okay, and if I mean, if you were to look at the market today, um, what what are some of the the kind of areas that investors might be vulnerable to behavioural biases? I think the key ones at the moment are recency bias and availability bias. So that is our our tendency to look at what has happened more recently or what is the most prominent, uh, either in the news or we're discussing with other people. And what we've seen really over the last decade is that equity markets have been strong and fairly consistently strong and volatility, price variability in equities has been lower than the historical average. So in essence, you've not been rewarded for being diversified. In fact, you've been rewarded for being undiversified and taking a more pro-risk stance. Um, so there's a real danger that people look at the short term uh, and rather than the longer uh, historical record of volatility and think we don't need to be as diversified because equities have been so strong and they've not been as as risky as historically been the case. Um, and that is a major issue because equities will be volatile again, there will be difficult periods again and diversification is one of the cornerstones of sensible long-term investing. So if investors are worrying more about their defensive assets and things that haven't produced as strong returns as equities rather than the risky elements of the portfolios, that's always a, a concern. And so in fund selection, what would you say are some of the, the tips that you, you'd give to other fund buyers? I think the major issue in fund selection is outcome bias. So it's the judgment of the quality of a process or philosophy just on performance alone. Markets are random and noisy and there's a huge amount of luck involved in active manager returns and deciphering between skill and luck is, is very difficult and there tends to be an obsession with performance um, but you need to understand how that performance has been generated rather than just say performance is good therefore the process must be strong or indeed performance is weak therefore the process must be broken. Um, I often think of a, a, a golfing analogy of, I'm terrible at golf and don't really play, but if I hit a golf shot um, and I shanked it and it came off a tree and ended up next to the hole, um, if you're just looking at the outcome of that, it would look like I'm a, a good golfer, where I've just had an outrageous stroke of fortune. Um, so you need to see consistent application of skill leading to good outcomes over the long term. Uh, I think the danger, certainly in fund selection, is everyone is too focused on who's performing well, what are the numbers, um, what's the consistency of that performance rather than what's the philosophy, what's the process. Um, I'm more concerned about managers performing well for the wrong reasons and a manager underperforming for the right reasons. So I think that focus on outcomes is a, is a real concern. Yeah, and so at Aberdeen Standard you sit on the Strategic Asset Allocation Committee. Yeah. So is that something you bring um, to the table? Do, do you have to kind of discuss this outwardly or how do you do this and put it into practice? So I think the, the strategic asset allocation framework we use is um, tends to be fairly objective in looking at forecast returns and volatilities over the long term. So it's reasonably well insulated from shorter term thinking. That's why it's such an important cornerstone of, of how we build the portfolios. Um, the behavioural shorter term elements certainly come through more in the, the fund selection decisions we have to make um, because you have the temptation there and the opportunity to be much more short-term 
in your thinking are much more vulnerable to the behavioural biases that we've, we've talked about. Yeah. Um, obviously, like with all major, major theories and, and kind of strands of research, there will be critics for it. And one of the major ones for uh, behavioural finance was Eugene Farmer. He said that behavioural finance is a collection of anomalies and that actually they're short-term chance events that are really corrected in time. Is that something that you, you would disagree with? There's certainly a, an array of anomalies, but I think the contention that they're not valid is, is somewhat absurd. Investors on an individual basis certainly are not rational and there's uh, an array of evidence across these biases that investors suffer from, um, from short-termism, from loss aversion, from outcome bias. Um, so they are anomalies. I think behavioural science and behavioural economics does suffer to an extent from being relatively disparate in terms of how it defines itself and being quite a broad array of different biases that are quite hard to bring together in one theory. Um, but I think that's just the nature of, of the issue. Um, and behavioural biases are very individualistic as well, where there's rational economic theory tends to try and create a, a rational person who behaves in a certain way. Behavioural economics and behavioural finance is about biases that people suffer, but they all suffer them in slightly different ways. One person's outcome bias is different to another person's um, outcome bias. Something like loss aversion. Um, the key part of loss aversion that people don't really think about is the, the reference point. So we are loss averse, but we're loss averse relative to some reference point. So you can't create a specific formula about loss aversion because you might have three investors and they all have the same portfolio and the same return, but one investor might compare their return to a benchmark and it's beaten that so they're happy. The next investor might have a reference point of their next door neighbour whose portfolio has done better, so they feel a loss. So the reference point thing is quite disparate and amorphous and it's quite hard to pin down, but certainly individual investors suffer from biases and their investment experience can become better with an awareness of behavioural finance. But as a, I take the point that as a unified concept, it's quite hard to apply. And I think that's why it's not m more widely applied. I think these factors are real, but it's very difficult to say how do we actually apply them and how do we make better, better decisions. But I imagine it's helped you in your decisions. I hope so. I think even an awareness of it, you, just, you can't immunise yourself from these things. Um, but an awareness of it is, is very important. Um, and some of the, the nudges, certainly for in individual investors, are quite simple and they often seem quite counterintuitive. So how can you make better decisions? So I think something like checking your portfolio less regularly is a good thing. Um, obviously less regularly? Yeah, so obviously transparency is a is a wonderful thing and having control and access are fantastic things but what people don't think about is the behavioural implications of, of that transparency and access. So if you check your portfolio daily and have the opportunity to trade daily then you're much more likely to make decisions and be influenced by how you feel at the time, about your fear and your greed. So actually if you're a long-term investor you don't need to be checking your portfolio every day if you've got a sense of allocation. So how often would you would you be checking your portfolio? It depends on the individual circumstance. Obviously professional investors are compelled to check their portfolios on a on a daily basis. But yeah. if you're an individual investor and you've got a diversified portfolio invested in pension, then certainly you don't need to be checking it on a daily basis. But again, it probably depends on the individual circumstance. But some of these things again are quite counterintuitive but if you're checking your portfolio daily, then there's probably a chance that you might be 
overtraining and not taking the, the long-term view. Reading into behavioural finance a bit deeper, I found that um, George Soros actually kept a log of all the, the reasonings behind all of his investment decisions. You know, is it, have you gone as far as doing that, or is, is that not that extra step maybe not necessary? No, I think it's really important. So one of the other problems we tend to have is we'll make a decision, not really document why we've made the decision, and then two or three years later, or a year later, or six months later, we'll look back and we'll retrofit some explanation as to why we made the decision at the time, which is not consistent with how we felt at the time. We've got new information, we're suffering from hindsight bias. Um, so I think it's really important, one of the most important behavioural steps people can make is at the time of making a decision, um, write down why they're making the decision. And um, There's this idea called a pre-mortem where when you, before you make a decision, you imagine that it's ended badly. So it's, imagine it's a mistake. and the reasons why it's a mistake. And that's been quite good for actually thinking about not just the positives of the decision but the potential negatives and at least preparing yourself for those potential negatives as you go through it. So if you're buying a high conviction fund manager with a high tracking error, um, then you need to write down at the time why you're buying it, what the reasons are, and also this could underperform by a significant amount in this environment. I'm aware of that at the point of investment. So being very specific about the decisions you make and why you make them is a very important discipline, but probably something that's not done as widely as you, as you might expect. Okay, um, so if, if you look back over the past couple of years, when would you say is an example of a time when there was the most widespread kind of illogical, irrational behaviour from investors? So it's so kind of a perfect example of widespread behavioural bias. I think the the behaviour around cryptocurrencies over the last two years. I don't have a, a particularly strong view either way, um, but certainly the behaviour of investors and the behaviour of markets through that period just shows how a narrative can grip markets um, quite strongly. And then, um, you, in essence, have quite a, you have a narrative that takes hold, you have a herd mentality that buys into a certain narrative, and then that narrative can change very dramatically based on um, a situation where not a great deal has changed. We can have huge fluctuations in price of an asset just based really on um, perception rather than changes in fundamentals. Um, and that, uh, the cryptocurrency example is quite interesting just because it happened so rapidly. You have this build up and this dramatic share or dramatic price appreciation um, in the related. Uh, currencies and then um, a dramatic sell-off as well but happened in a very contracted space of time so you have these markets where um, the narrative builds you get people joining and in essence the strength of the price performance bolsters the narrative so it's quite similar to an outcome bias situation so you have a situation where the actual the price movements in themselves and the strength of the price movements on the upside um, support the narrative behind it and support the fundamental case and then more and more investors are are drawn into that just simply because of the of the price appreciation and nothing fundamentally changing about the uh, the investment case from one period to the next um, and then the flip side of that is when that narrative changes for whatever reason then you get the reverse momentum and you get money being withdrawn quite rapidly um, so that was a, a microcosm of uh, a dramatic build-up in um, sentiment and momentum in a particular area of the market and then um, a withdrawal of that 
uh, money and a, and a change in sentiment and, and perception that happened in quite a short space of time. Yeah, I mean, that even extended to personal investors. You saw people um, reading the news and seeing the price increasing so rapidly and, and that everyone started piling in, but it wasn't only you know, the, the professional investors and the ones who are more accustomed to it. Um, so, so I suppose that was a good example of where everyone got Yeah, there's an interesting theory by a sociologist by a, the name of Mark Granovetter who talked about uh, threshold theory, which in basic terms was if there's a group of people and they're considering joining a riot, what is the threshold for the next person to join the riot? So someone will join a riot after two people join a riot, but someone with a higher threshold might wait until virtually all of the crowd are in the right, and they'll join in. Uh, so you get that momentum effect where, although initially only a few people are participating in the rise in NASA price, uh, it might not affect many people, but as that the magnitude of people becoming involved in it, particularly as it appreciates quite dramatically, then other people start to get drawn in, and you get this virtuous circle, I suppose, building up where people move move in, and they have this fear of missing out on the... On the um, on the rise in asset price and particularly because it's so prominent in the news as well so it's very available in their minds they're hearing lots about it um, probably not thinking as much about the fundamental case and more about the potential gains and the, and the price momentum that other people might have enjoyed but they haven't yet enjoyed so you have this build-up of of momentum um, that can distinguish quite rapidly as well yeah yeah I mean clearly with the end of um, cryptocurrencies well it's not the end but you, you see them tail off massively at the beginning of this year and uh, just fall, just plummet, really. Um, just going back to something you said earlier, because I, th I thought it was quite interesting, the documenting your reasoning behind investment decisions. Have you ever gone back to investment decisions and seen that actually you might have fallen foul of one of, your, one of the behavioural biases? One of the defining experiences of my, my earlier career, certainly, was when I think in the relatively relatively young and early in my career in the coming out of the financial crisis that was early in 2009 and one of the decisions I suppose that stayed with me for being a mistake um, was, was so we sold out of, I was at a different firm at the time, we sold out of some high yield bond positions I think it was in January or February in 2009 um, which was looking back was a terrible time to sell. Um, not based on the fact that high yield bonds did well after they were sold, but on the fact, on the basis of the evidence at the time that spreads were very wide and that uh, was a good guide to future returns being higher. That was objectively not a good decision, but at the time uh, it was very driven by emotion and um, yeah, how you fear and the, and the narrative around markets at the time. But obviously looking back now, it's very difficult to replicate how things were at the time and um, the talk of the failure of the financial system and huge default rates but and the, how that made you feel as an investor um, so when you look back in an objective sense you think well that's a poor decision um, but obviously it's very difficult to replicate what you're thinking at the time which is why it's very good to then document why did we make that decision all those years ago um, and um, otherwise looking back now you probably wouldn't be able to um, get a good gauge on why you made that decision. So, so is the um, kind of basis of a lot of irrational investment decisions, does that stem from a lot of emotional, kind of the emotional side of it and that's why you're pushed to make? Yeah, absolutely. I think emotion and affect and how we feel about a decision is um, one of the most important factors um, and probably something we don't 
think about enough. Um, it's very difficult to admit as well that emotion is driving your decision making. You want to think that you're basing your decision on evidence and your cognition rather than how you actually feel at the time. Yeah. Um, but one of the key parts I think of investment decision making is if you feel in an emotional state, which I think we can all be aware of if we feel excited about an investment or if we feel afraid of an investment or worried, it's probably best to wait. So if it's a good idea today, it'll probably be a good idea tomorrow when your emotional state might be a little different. So having some patience and taking some time to avoid making emotional decisions is um, is a good thing. There might be times when your gut instinct is right, but there will also be many times when how you feel about something declining, about seeing the news and you feel fearful and you feel bad because your investment isn't working out, you can make a snap judgment based on emotions which in the cold light of day might not be a, a sensible decision. So taking the time to wait and say, is this still a good decision tomorrow? Um, I think it's a prudent exercise. Because surely if we didn't have these irrational, illogical kind of biases and decisions, then you'd have a perfectly efficient market. <laughs> <laughs> I think that certainly our behavioural biases are the key driver of why markets are inefficient and go through bouts from I suppose bouts of being a little bit inefficient to wildly inefficient and I think Robert Schiller did some work about the volatility of equity prices being much higher than the actual fundamental change in the value of those equity markets. Um, so obviously equities are a stream of cash flows, they shouldn't be as volatile as they are but you have uncertainty around the value of those cash flows and you have investors behavioural biases as well. Uh, which means markets are much more volatile um, than they might otherwise be and volatility feeds itself, volatility of asset prices is caused by our behaviour and our behavioural biases and then that volatility then causes us uh, to behave in certain ways as well so you have a vicious circle where volatility is caused by behaviour and that volatility, our reaction to price movements then causes other behaviours as well um, so the behavioural biases are one of the key drivers as to why markets are um, and not efficient. And as humans, we can't eliminate that. We can never kind of get rid of, of that part of that side of our kind of rational decision making. Um, but then, surely, if you look at, at more passive products or quant-driven products, you, you kind of get rid of that layer of uh, illogical or irrational, emotional and emotional decision making. Yeah, I think that's fair. And uh, many of the enhanced index or smart beta strategies that now exist are um, attempting to exploit those behavioural biases in a, in a systematic fashion without without the emotion and without the biases. So um, the value premium um, may exist because of behavioural biases and you might be able to exploit that systematically. So that is an evolution of the market where we are more aware of behavioural biases and we can identify risk premium that exists and then perhaps use behavioural explanations as to why those risk premium exist. Just picking up on one thing you said about um, how important it is to diversify your portfolio. So that, that fits into one of the ways you try to stay clear of behavioural biases. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So I think being diversified is a way to be humble, a way to acknowledge that there is a, an element of uncertainty and to ensure that the portfolio um, over the long term behaves in a way that is in line with expectations and your own behavioural tolerance for, for diversity or for more difficult outcomes. Um, we can certainly become 
overconfident and we can become complacent and that probably leads to portfolios which are undiversified and which are too risky um, and which create behavioural problems down the line when uh, you're exposed to the inherent problems of running concentrated or undiversified portfolios. So if we look at the current environment, um, is it more so important now to be well diversified, would you say, in terms of your asset allocation? I think so. Uh, as I said earlier, equities have been strong for a sustained period of time. They've also been um, less volatile than has historically been the case, so it's very easy to make the decision that we don't need to be as diversified. Um, but I think, again, that's complacent and that's focusing more on the short term and what's available to us uh, rather than the base rate of equity volatility and the risks inherent in equity markets. Um, and it's been a long cycle as well. So a long cycle of equity market progress since what, 2009. Um, so being diversified, being prudent, making sure you have uh, an asset allocation that is not focused on one particular outcome is, is ever more important. Um, fixed income as an asset class had, has had a, a tough time um, recently. Where, where are you looking in that space at the moment to find opportunities? Yeah, so the key questions I think we're asking ourselves as portfolio managers and asset allocators at the moment is how do we allocate in the defensive asset space and how can we insulate ourselves from a rising yield environment? Now, I don't think you have to believe necessarily that inflation is a problem and yields are going to rise, but there is a possibility or a probability that that might happen. And in that scenario, um, you need assets that are diversifying. So diversification is not about taking one view, it's about having a portfolio that is um, reasonably well prepared for different market outcomes. Um, so one of the key components of our portfolios is short duration credit. So this is investment grade, grade credit, but with a one to five year maturity. And how long, how long have you been looking at that for then? So we've been allocating there um, for a number of years now, um, but I think it's becoming increasingly important in the portfolios and we've recently added um, global short dated credit as well. Previously it was just sterling short dated credit and we've added to some global exposure as well. Um, so short dated credit gives you the benefit of not only being um, insulated to an extent from rising yields but if you look at the long-term history of short dated credit um, the risk adjusted returns are notably higher so than uh, long dated credit on a sharp ratio basis. So they work well in a portfolio context not simply because they're diversifying and have less interest rate risk and credit risk than all maturity credit but also because the risk adjusted returns are, are strong as well so they're a very effective component in the portfolio. Are there any funds in particular that you've found um, perform quite well in this area? So we've we invest across active and passive strategies so uh, in some of our portfolios we use a, a pure passive approach to short dated credit um, we also use a strategy managed by um, Standard Life Investments and also use Rubico, um, who we used previously in uh, all maturity global credit and worked with to, to put together and launch a short dated version of that strategy. So we think the disciplines on short dated credit are very similar to long dated credit. There are a few nuances to the approach, but I think generally the skills from, from one discipline are, are portable across to investing solely in the shorter dated market. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. A pleasure. Thank you very much. A lot to think about there. Indeed. <laughs>